You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Before we get started, I, I'd like to lead us into a quick prayer. A reading over and over through the text that is ahead of us, I'm reminded of how glorious Jesus is and how wonderful he is and how, how much we need him. So if I could lead us in a prayer, if we could bow our heads. And... Father, we, we do not have words, Lord, greater than holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. We thank you, Lord, that you are far too good to us. That, Lord, you have saved our souls. That, Lord, you have brought us from our brokenness, from our depravity, and you have made us new. Father, we are grateful that we are able to carry the good news of the gospel. Father, I ask, Lord, that the message today would be one, Lord God, that leads us, Lord, more into your presence, more into seeking your word, more into humility before you, so that, Lord, we may become effectual doers, Lord God, and not only hearers. Father, guide, Lord, this service and guide our lives, Lord God, going forward. Let us lean in on you and not on ourselves. We praise you. I praise you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So um, today's uh, passage, we will be diving deep into, into James chapter 2, the first portion of James chapter 2, which is 1 through 13. Prior to James chapter 2, we've hit James chapter 1, which we've, hopefully we've been here for. But a quick recap of that, really what it all lies in is keeping your eyes intently planted on the perfect law of liberty that is able to save us in it. The gospel, right? Keep, keeping our eyes on Christ. And uh, we've talked about anger. We've talked about joy. We've talked about faith and how we should live our life of faith. And now we are going into something that seems like he, like James, is jumping to something else. But I can promise you he has a method to his madness. This is not by chance. And before we start as well, I'd like us to remember who James was. He was the brother of Jesus physically and became a child of the king spiritually. And now he is speaking to his brothers who are the Jews, right? And he's speaking to the assembly or the synagogue in other terms, in other words, to those that have been spread apart because of why trial and tribulation. Where, where that came from, we'll see clear actually within the passage today. So we, uh, let's read first once through this passage and then we will go verse by verse uh, speaking about it or uh, preaching about it. So if we could all stand for the reading of, of God's word. And uh, if you have your Bible, open it to James chapter two, verse one. Okay. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ, with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring 
and dressed in bright clothes or fine clothes. And there also comes in a man in dirty clothes and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not, that the, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy and mercy triumphs over justice or over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. We can be seated. Thank you. So before we, we begin uh, diving into the, the verse itself, the, the, this passage itself, the actual heading of this portion of my Bible, which may be the same for yours, it is called the sin of partiality or the sin of personal favoritism. Now, partiality is simple. It's what it sounds like, personal favoritism. It's judging or treating others unfairly or with deference. Now, there can be reasons for why you treat people unfairly, good and bad, actually. I am quite partial to my wife in the sense that I love her more than any other woman, right? Uh, and I, I love her like I love no other woman, right? Similarly with my children, I'm quite partial to them. They're mine. God has given me the responsibility to take care of them and to love them. But there are bad forms of partiality. The partiality that brings destruction to a congregation. Um, and this is what is talked about here. This partiality can be conceived when we give way to idolatry and to hatred. And these are two, two things that I, I want you to keep in your mind as we walk through this passage, because everything is, will be sort of underlined and almost uh, mixed in with, the, with these ideas, this idolatry and hatred. They are present and they need to be dealt with. And that is what James is doing in the church that is spread abroad. So let's begin with uh, verse one. My brethren, do not hold your faith in your glorious Lord Jesus Christ with, a per, with an attitude of personal favoritism or just simply with personal favoritism. He starts by, by leading with loving language. He says, my brethren, if you can imagine, like we said before we started, this is the brother of Jesus. And I want you to also um, try to put yourselves into his shoes. With everything that he says within this book, 
he has in mind a vivid image of his brother, of his brother, Jesus Christ. So this is not something that is simply uh, him speaking theologically, but he is speaking out of love. And he knows that he has brothers now in the family of God because of his brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is with love that he wants to say this. He's not trying to, you know, punch them too hard, but he does want them to know. My brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He then goes to say, do not hold your faith. Holding the faith. What does that mean? Well, something very important in relation to holding is what it reveals. And what I mean by that is the way in which you hold something will reveal its value. So what he is saying, do not hold your faith this way in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. But if there is a way to hold the faith. So let me explain what I mean by how you hold something reveals its value. Uh, I don't know if any one of you has heard, which I'm sure everyone has heard of, the Queen of England. The Queen of England, right? Well, the Queen of England was head of the British Empire, so to speak. Um, it could be just ceremonially or, you know, she had not any more, like not political power, but she was still the head, considered to be the head of Britain. Well, her crown jewels, as you see, that beautiful crown and the scepter, and she has also crowns that are laid on her neck, crowns that they have, or, or gems that they lay on her neck, all kinds of jewels. These jewels are held in a tower behind bomb-proof glass with more than 100 cameras filming 24-7 and 22 guards on staff at all time. And in order to see it, you must pay $30 or 30 pounds. So it costs to enter, and the closest you will ever get is seeing them because the only ones that are able to touch them are who? It's the queen and king, the archbishop, and then you have the jeweler who's responsible for cleaning them and maintaining them. And then, uh, so what I can say by that, right, as far as the way that they are held, you don't need to know that there are jewels in that tower. Just based on how we've explained that tower, you know there's something precious within it. The way that they're held and protected shows that they are of great value. Similarly, well, actually, before, before we move on to a, a really good example that, that is interesting, um, these actual jewels are said to be priceless. And they are priceless not because they are necessarily rare. Um, they are rare. They're large jewels, hard to find. So they are fairly expensive. But why would they be priceless? Being invaluable. Um, you can't put a price on them. Some have said 400 billion, 800 billion, really high number, right? but really there is no value to them. That is because of the one who is intimately related to them or the ones who are. So historically, this has been in the hands of the royal family of England. And guess what? There's only one royal family of England. So there's not another. And if you get rid of these and make exact replicas, it's not the same thing. doesn't matter, right? They may be worth monetarily the same, but they have a value that is not in its cost, but in the one who owns them, right? Another example of 
how you hold the faith and how that shows that it is valuable is a totally different example. This one, everyone agreed the jewels were expensive and they had value. But let's, let's, uh, we, we'll go to two, 2 Samuel verse tw- uh, or chapter 23, verse 9 through 10. Let's read this. And after him was Eleazar. So this is speaking of the mighty men of David. And he had just mentioned the first mighty man, and now this is the second mighty man. After him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo the Ahahite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle, and the men of Israel had withdrawn. He arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the people returned after him only to strip the slain of the, of the goods that were there. So if you're reading this in a different version, actually it may say frozen to the sword instead of clung to the sword. His hand was frozen in place. So Eleazar, in the way that he held his sword, showed that it was priceless. But this sword was most likely common. It was probably the same sword that most of the mighty men had. But its function made its worth more than all the crown jewels that the queen had in her tower at that moment and all the gold in the world, right? For that moment, the, f- the function of that sword in his hand was of more value than anything else you could give him. So this is how we are to hold our faith, these two examples, both because of who it is, this faith that we have, who it is intimately intertwined with, Christ, and also what its function is. And its function is pretty important. Let's, uh, let's continue here. Its function is that it saves our souls. Our, the faith, through faith, we have salvation in Christ Jesus by grace through faith. Now this faith must be used correctly. And James, uh, James points out that there is a wrong way and right way to use this faith. Do not hold it. If it's in your hand, it means it should be used. And if, uh, if it's not used, then uh, you'll probably end up dead on the battlefield. So this, this shield must be used. So if we could go to Ephesians 5, verse 16, we'll read, in addition to all, take up the shield of faith, which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So like I said, this, this faith, it needs to be picked up daily and it needs to be picked up right and it needs to be picked up for the right reasons. And if you hold this faith, you can leave the battlefield victorious. Now, that is just a little hint because we'll be touching more on this next week um, about using our faith and how it works. But before we go forward, I actually want to jump back. So I want to jump back to James chapter 1, verse 27. So we've, we've, we've read on how to hold our faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we read in verse 27 of last week, uh, of last, the, the passage we read last week, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction 
and to keep oneself unstained from the world. All right, that seems like there's a break there. He speaks on this point, and then he goes to, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Something is, seems like it's missing, but I, I would argue it's not. So this standard that he's mentioning here is actually impossible for the carnal man, for the man that does not know Christ. It is impossible. That is why I believe James, right after the verse says, the faith we hold in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, emphasizing, I want to emphasize glorious Lord Jesus Christ without personal favoritism. Because what he's doing here, at least the way I see it, is he is hoping in verse one of chapter two to remind us how we would be successful in, chapter, in verse 27. He reminds us to direct our gaze again to our glorious Lord. And in, initially in verse one of chapter, of chapter one, he says, he is a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here he says, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, why? Because he wants to remind us that in him is all beauty, wealth, and power, and they are found only in him. And that only when we gladly seek out, and well, only then when we realize this glory that is in God, will we then gladly seek out the orphan, the widow, and keep ourselves unstained from this world. Why? Why is this the case? Well, because once we know that his glory, once we have been, um, once his glory has been revealed, we remember. We remember what? That by faith in him, we were redeemed and adopted as sons. Just for the orphan, right? But we were not mere orphans. We were rebellious children. And he made us sons and daughters. And by faith in him, we have been redeemed and become a bride from what? We are not widows, we were prostitutes. And because of that, because of what he has done, we seek to remain pure and undefiled as we will wait his return. And we do it out of a love for him. So when, when James in, in, in this first verse mentions glorious Lord Jesus Christ, that's what he wants us to keep in mind. He wants us to keep in mind why he is so glorious, what he has done to be so glorious for us, right? And that's the only way we can take this instruction that we have here, which is to hold it without an attitude of personal favoritism. It is the only way we can hold it in remembering his glory, okay? Okay. So what James is trying to do now, he's, he's mentioned this sin, this, this issue that is in the church, the issue of personal favoritism or partiality. And what he is trying to do is nip it in the bud, right? That means it's not something that's hidden or away. It, he sees it growing. It's growing within the church and he acknowledges it. Interestingly enough, he was not aware, but that th this very sin will eventually take root in the church in Jerusalem. And Paul will have to confront Peter just a few years later. It will be something the church will have to fight against until the return of Christ. And it is a battle that we must be confronted in, in every single church, including our own, especially when we see it growing. 
So this is very directly for us and for everyone that is part of the body of Christ because our natural inclination is to be partial. Okay? So what exactly is this personal favoritism, this partiality? We've already touched on that. It is that you judge or you treat your neighbor unfairly or differently. And the Bible is actually extremely clear and it is not something new. It is not something that was sort of not known about. If uh, it was mentioned by Christ, affirmed by Christ, and it was in the earliest records of the law that we can find directly from God, that we are not to be partial in how we deal with one another. Whether to the rich or to the poor, if we go to Leviticus, Leviticus 19, verse 15, it says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall, be, you shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. So this is from the beginning. This is, this is the heart of God for us from the beginning. And it is who God is. He is impartial. Therefore, we must be impartial. So just remember that. This is something that is clearly stated in the law. There's no way of getting around it. And when you break this, you've broken the law. So let's continue moving forward to verse two. For verse two to five, or actually verse two to verse, yeah, verse two to five. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and is dressed in bright clothes and a poor man in dirty clothes also comes in and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the bright clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Listen, my beloved brethren, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? So he is, he is directly pointing out the sin that is present. This is not something, I'm sure when it was read amongst their congregation, there were a lot of people that were read. This was not, this, this is clear. There is a sin going on of partiality. And he's mentioning that, hey, when you treat people this way, you're doing something that is not in the plan of God for us. Now, how does this happen? How is the church so early on, right at, close to, to Christ's life itself, his death and resurrection, living people that have seen him raised from the dead slide into this sin Let's look back to verse one again. It's when we forget how glorious our Lord is. When we forget how glorious our Lord is. We begin to think that someone else has something to offer. That someone has something greater to offer even. And we see here that these men that are coming in, these well-adorned with gold and in bright clothes. I love, I love the version that says bright clothes because we know a man that was dressed in bright clothes, brighter than any other, Jesus Christ. And we know a man that was, that was clothed in darkness, that bore our darkness and sin, greater than any other, that's Jesus Christ. And how quickly we forget that. And the issues here, it's, it seems like, man, this can't be. You've, 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 you've missed the mark so badly but it's still continuing on to this day, this issue. 
the truth of the gospel, which is what we're talking about here, because this is, he's speaking to the synagogue or to the church, the one that has the gospel to give, is that to the impoverished, Jesus is everything. To the impoverished, the trampled, and the forgotten, to the hopeless, Christ gives a promise of adoption into the royal family, a promise of everlasting wealth that has never and will never be diminished. Same promise to the wealthy as well, but it seems to strike the heart of the poor a little different. To the wealthy, proud, self-exalted, the gospel illuminates the fact that the only wealth that matters is the one that they do not possess. That there is a wealth so glorious that in its presence, our worldly riches, they shrivel. And that's hard. That's, that's hard to, to realize because they become of no importance. His glory, when you keep your eyes on Christ, his glory reveals the futility of every pursuit outside of him. And it brings them to their knees, right? So this is what the gospel does. For those that are proud, it breaks them down. And for those that are impoverished and humiliated, it lifts them up. It gives them hope. It's wonderful. The truth of the matter is that he's speaking here with Jews. So he's speaking with men and women that were raised up in the law. That's what they know. They know the law. And that's how, that's how they thought the, the whole lives is by following this law, the chances of salvation are here. This is where the promise of salvation is in the law. And the truth is the law made the ground level. It made the ground level for everyone. But it also buries us beneath it. So it buries us beneath its condemnation. And Christ affirmed that law and is the only one to fulfill it. And that, uh, that is why he is the only one to remain or to not remain buried, but to rise again and is alive today, right? That is the gospel. He was buried and he was resurrected. And eventually we will be resurrected with him, right? So uh, this, is, this is the evil and, and the horrible, uh, the horrible nature of, of personal favoritism. It is that a partial gospel, both partial and partial, if you know what I mean, yes, <laughs> is a dead gospel. It is a counterfeit gospel. That is to say, it is no longer the gospel to begin with. So this church that was responsible for bearing the gospel in the world and sharing it with those that, were, that would come in and for those that were around, had changed that, that good life-giving gospel to the gospel that, well, a fake gospel, counterfeit gospel, no gospel at all. They, they, they were spreading lies. They were spreading truth, uh, uh, mistruths. Because the faith in, Christ, faith in Christ is impartial. But like I said, it becomes counterfeit when we become partial. So uh, let, me, let me give a quick example here. It's like, uh, it's, it's like having someone come up to you who was just given a gold-plated iPhone 14 Pro Max, carrying it without a screen protector or without a cover, and he's telling you, man, this is amazing. It's amazing. This phone, uh, he's, he's just telling you all the good things about it, and while he's doing that, he's fidgeting with it and spinning it on the concrete bench that you're sitting on. Just 
you know, how you do it. If you have a cover, you can, you can spin your phone pretty easily. It does nothing. But he's, uh, he's treating it like that. He lets you see it, but you realize it has no battery. It has no SIM. You realize quickly this is just a form of the phone he claims to have, but it's devoid of any power to perform as the genuine article. He's either a liar or confused and deluded. But if you don't have another person around you who has that genuine article, you can quickly come to the conclusion that all those people that claim to have this amazing phone are liars. But when someone shows you that genuine article, it quickly shows you that the last person had a fake. His Apple logo was backwards. The fit and finish were horrible. It is not the genuine article. This is something else. This is what we're doing when we are partial in the body of Christ. By the grace of God, you hope that if someone does come into a situation where partiality is being practiced, that they would come in contact with a brother or sister that has the genuine article of the gospel. Because otherwise, like many in the world today, they come to think that there is no genuine article. It doesn't exist. We show the world in the way that we hold this gospel, right? He's just flicking it around. You only do that with something that isn't the genuine article with something that is fake, right? What we do is we show the world that Christ is not precious when we are partial. We trample the very blood by which we are saved. Why? Because of our own selfish ambition. Selfish ambition reminds us of idolatry, which we pointed out initially, right? So a partial gospel, it undermines the work of Christ but the true and impartial gospel furthers his kingdom. So that, that is for sure. All right. And this is what they do, right? They, they tell the rich man to come here and sit there in the good seat and the poor man sit at my feet. What, is, what does James tell them? Have you not made distinctions? In verse four, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Judges with evil motives. What does that mean exactly, right? There's a law by which you are judged. Um, how do you judge? The, the law is the same. How do you judge it? How do you, have, how, how do, you do this? Well, really, there shouldn't, this shouldn't exist, but uh, it does. And there's a good example, actually, in Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. There was a judge there. In a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him and saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said, it to him, said to himself, even though I do not fear God, nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. This is an evil judge. Seems like good. He filled what she needed. He gave her what she needed, but his motives were evil. What were his motives? His motives were to serve himself, his own selfish ambition. Once again, selfish ambition, this idolatry of self is what is, is, is the undergirding principle of, of partiality. It's one of them. You must have the self, or everyone has the selfish ambition. We must act on it uh, in order to be partial. And that's what they're doing here. They are acting on this selfish ambition and therefore being partial. We deserve to serve ourselves rather than our Lord and rather than our neighbor. 
And in so, we do not respect and honor the image of Christ in our neighbor that is amongst us. We, the funny thing is, when we do this, it is, um, it's an oxymoron. Why do I mean by an oxymoron? What we are trying to do is we are trying to yield righteousness with death. We are trying to bring about good with evil. So we see the situation here is, is, it's pretty clear. He's saying, hey, you are being partial and you are being partial to the rich. Why would they be partial to the rich? Well, who knows? We know, we know actually, because we read chapter one. There are, there are trials that they were going through. And further on, actually, we'll see what these trials are, but there are trials. And these trials may have been more easily resolved if they had some money, right? So, hey, let's, let's focus on the rich man, give him some status, because then maybe we in turn will benefit and we will have someone to help us. God forbid they look to the cross, right? So they dishonor the poor man. And he says, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Interesting, right? He is, he is reminding them, I would say, he was reminding them of Israel. Do you remember Bible study going through Hosea? What was constantly said is that they would turn from God and go to their enemy for support, for help. They think this is our salvation. And not knowing they were bleeding them dry, they were becoming poorer and there was no hope. This is what they're doing again. They have a, they're still struggling in their old ways. They're continuing to do what they were doing before that. It's a, it's a horrible reality to live in. Once you know the truth and still to be drawn in by that counterfeit. So uh, remember, whoever you are being partial to, the major reason that he is pointing out here is selfish ambition. And that selfish ambition is a form of idolatry, a form of self-worship. And now he, he moves forward. He moves forward to verse eight to verse 11. So let's read that real quick. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Interesting. That's pretty interesting. He jumps, he jumps to here. And, he's, and, and if, you, if, you, if you read this, it seems like it's sort of a, a quick switch. Uh, he does talk about partiality, but then he jumps to adultery and murder. But he tells them first, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. And that is what the issue was, is that they thought they were following the law. But what James is actually saying here, he's being, I think, I think he is being generous and kind. And what he's saying is, if you think you follow the law, he's really saying, yeah, right. He's saying, yeah, right. He's like, you are not. You're hopeless. 
He's saying, please. He's like, you are, you are bragging that you keep the royal law, the law of the king, the one that is impartial, that gives us the gospel that is impartial. This is the problem of partiality in that the king is no longer Jesus Christ, but the rich man in your midst for your own selfish ambition. Really, the king is you, right? That's what he is telling them. He is telling them, if you really keep the royal law, you're not. He's telling you, you already failed. You cannot follow the royal law unless you serve the merciful king. He is the only way that you could follow this law. And like I said, this letter would have been read aloud. And you can imagine, like I was saying, there was probably some awkwardness as this was being read. He is pointing out sin, but he switches all of a sudden from favoritism, being convicted as lawbreakers, because if you break one, you break them all. And he switches over to committing adultery and murder. And you can just imagine sort of this relief. This is not us. Partiality, yeah, but we are not adulterers, maybe some of us, but we are not uh, murderers for sure. That's for sure, right? None of them were murderers, most likely, most likely. Right? They, they, they're, they're probably feeling a little bit of, of relief in this letter. But I think what James is doing here is once again, I think James is gentle. I think James is being very gentle. And what James is pointing out is that they are murderers and adulterers by the fact that they are partial. So when when you read this, it seems like he's just swapped, but he's not. He's saying, he's saying, hey, um, do not commit adultery. By the way, you've committed it. Do not commit murder. By the way, you've committed it. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So they are guilty of it all, right? And as we've talked about initially, that idolatry is adultery. And that self-ambition leads to all kinds of evil and sin. But there's also hatred, another form of partiality. You can either hate the rich or you can show, or you can hate the poor. You cannot love both. The only way to love both is by being just in the law and how you treat the law towards them and how you give the gospel. That is the only way to love both. Otherwise you hate one or hate the other. So this is what's going on here. They are being shown clearly that they really have broken all the law. They have become transgressors of it all. And we read here in Jeremiah 3, verse 20. This, is, uh, uh, this will clarify what I'm trying to say here. That partiality is intimately bound to adultery and murder. And you cannot be partial without breaking these as well. So in Jeremiah 3, verse 20, we read, Surely, this is God speaking to his people. Surely as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel. There is a spiritual adultery going on. Leviticus 19 verse 17 talks about that hatred that exists. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. 
And this is clarified by Jesus, actually, in Matthew 5, verse 21, where he says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Great, right? That's not, that's not us, most likely. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in dangers of the fire of hell. So he goes to the most atrocious sin because we all know that we haven't done it. But in reality, every single one of us, if we show partiality, we commit, we break the whole of the law. So he moves forward and he moves to verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Now, what is James doing here? I I believe he is reeling us all back in. So after he's given this, not this harsh, but not so harsh, it's just sort of gentle. um, Hey, you guys are in this sin. You need to to get out of it. This is not the way that that you should be living your lives. He is reeling us back in. And this is how we can find relief from the sin in our midst. If we go back to James chapter one, verse 25, The one who looks intently at the perfect law of liberty and abides by it, not having become a forgetful, uh, not not having become a a forgetful, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So the the one that looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, this is who is able to not live this life of partiality. James is calling us to that perfect love, a love that is a law that is fulfilled in Christ. James is not saying that the law prior to Christ was not perfect in, in mentioning that the perfect law is the law of liberty um, because it actually was. And let me explain what I mean by it. It was perfect. The law was, a, was perfect in part. And that part was that it revealed that our attempts at righteousness were hopeless and perfect The law was perfect for our judgment and condemnation, but it was not complete. When Jesus appeared, the perfect law of liberty and defeated sin and death, the depths of our depravity was laid clear. This law now actually condemns us further. We see truly who we are with Christ. And his glory was revealed to be immeasurable. His image is made most clear when we layer them on top of one another. The good news on top of the bad news. The bad news was the law. There was no hope. You needed a savior and that savior came. And when you look into that mirror with Christ being laminated onto it, it changes everything. The mirror of the law is perfect when the gospel is present. His image is made most clear in the gospel. And James is bringing us back to that. And he says, and this is where I believe he is bringing us back to it. He says, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over justice. What is he saying here? Judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. I'm sure they were still showing mercy 
to the impoverished, helping out the impoverished. What, what is merciful? What is, what is mercy? The good news of Jesus Christ is mercy. The gospel is mercy. His life, his death, his resurrection, that we will return and uh, he will return and we will be raised from the dead with him. That is the greatest mercy that we can give. And if you are not giving that mercy, something, something bad will happen. You will be, it says, for judgment will be merciless with you. If that gospel has not pierced your heart, if it has not changed you, if it has not worked in you, and you spread that good news to everyone else, the only option is the law. That's all that's left for you. And that law brings about death. So those that hold faith, hold faith like Eleazar did with your frozen grip on this sword because he is the glorious Lord, Jesus Christ. And we keep our eyes fixed on him. They will live that gospel and preach that gospel because the greatest news a dying man can get is that he can live. And that's what we need to preach to all those around us, that you can live. But those that hope to live through the law will be judged by it. And that's exactly what he's saying here. Because they have denied the mercy of the good news, clinging instead to that which brings sin and death. Through Christ, Mercy has triumphed over justice, life over death, liberty over bondage. So hold your faith in your, in your Lord, Jesus Christ, fixing your eyes to the perfect mirror of the law of liberty. Remind yourself of that good news daily, the gospel. In doing so, he will remain glorious and brilliant, brighter than anything or anyone in this world. And partiality shall disappear in our hearts. As Paul says in Romans chapter one, they don't disagree. They are in agreement here. For he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And here's the awesome part. For the Jew and for the Gentile, devoid of any partiality. This is the gospel. This is the good news. So carry this good news with you. Carry this good news. Seek Christ every day in his word, as we read in chapter one just recently, that we must receive the implanted word with humility and it is able to change us and save our souls. So every day, come to Christ. Look in that mirror and remember who you were so that love may abound in you and to those that are around you through the gospel. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Let me, uh, let me close this out in a quick prayer. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.